question, and uh, you don't have to respond out loud. As a matter of fact, you may not want to respond out loud, but do you believe in aliens? Extraterrestrial life, all right? Do, do you believe in that? Now, I would tell you that I am a person uh, that for most of my life, I, I would articulate to you that I, I think we're it. You know, I think that, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only, only son and earth received his son and that, that we're it, that we're, we're the only ones uh, uh, in, in, our, uh, in, in our sphere here. I, I would tend to believe that, except for an incident that happened to me when I was in middle school. And I'm not going to go into it because you're all going to think I'm insane. And I don't want you thinking your preacher's insane. Um, but we, I had an incident when I was driving home from a conference with my youth leader uh, of essentially, I won't go into all of the details, but essentially like a, a, a ball of light following our car all the way home. And uh, I would tell you that I really believe we're the only ones, except for that one incident <laughs> that I, I still think back, I'm like, what was that? We never figured out what it was. It was just a bizarre thing. But our culture uh, has always been uh, fascinated by aliens. And so I want to play a little game, and I think it's a good morning. Our attendance is down a little bit uh, for us to play a game. Um, that uh, I'm going to put the Wikipedia description on the screen for you. And uh, you tell me uh, what show... Uh, this is describing, all right? And uh, it's be all shows that have to do, or movies that have to do uh, with aliens, all right? The main character is an alien from the planet Melmac who follows an amateur radio signal to Earth and crash lands in the garage of the Tanners. The Tanners are a suburban middle-class family in the San Fernando Valley area of California. The family consists of a social worker, Willie, his wife, Kate, their teenage daughter, Lynn, and their younger son, Brian, and their cat, Lucky, whom the alien wishes to consume. All right, how many fans of Elf? All right, a few? All right, pretty bad show. All right, um, <clears throat> all right, so, all right. Uh, all right, a group of alien botanists secretly visit Earth under cover of night uh, to gather plant specimens in the California forest. When government agents appear on the scene, the aliens flee to their spaceship, but in their haste, one of them is left behind. In a, in a suburban neighborhood in the San Fernando Valley, a 10-year-old boy named Elliot is spending time with his brother Michael and his friends. As he returns from picking up a pizza, he discovers that something is hiding in the tool shed. The alien promptly uh, flees upon being discovered. Despite the family's disbelief, alien, uh, Elliot leaves Reese's Pieces candy to lure the alien into his house. All right, E.T. fans? All right, better. All right, all right. Out beyond the far reaches of space, an unknown planet explodes, sending a strange meteorite across the galaxy heading towards Earth. Meanwhile, Susan Murphy of Modesto, California, California again, hmm, okay, is going to be married to a news weatherman named Derek Deedle. Just before the ceremony, she is hit by a meteorite, and the energy causes her to glow green, and grow to an enormous size with her hair turned white. She is tranquilized by the military and awakens in a top secret government facility that houses monsters of which the public are ignorant. Anyone know what it is yet? All right, what is it? All right, this is for parents with uh, small kids, all right? Monsters versus aliens, all right? Um, so we are, as a culture, we are kind of uh, obsessed with this idea of aliens. And I think there's something very compelling to us as a people uh, thinking about like an alien trying to live uh, in a foreign land or in, or in a different land. And here's what I want you to see uh, this morning. We're going to get to the Sermon on the Mount eventually, but did you know that's how the Bible describes Christians? 
that we are described in more, on more than one occasion uh, as aliens living in a foreign world. Let me show you this uh, from Peter. All right. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. Then he's going to talk through how do you live as aliens? How do you live such different lives? He says, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake for every human authority, whether to the emperor or the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing so, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people and do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth." The longer you follow Jesus and the more you become like him, you are going to look, you should begin to look a little bit like an alien living in a foreign land. Really, we should. That the way of Jesus, you can even see it in a text like Peter's, that the way of Jesus is countercultural. The way of Jesus is different. We should, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we should look different from everybody uh, around us. And it might be the way that you feel in our culture a little bit. You know, every culture has some distinctives, some, way that you could, some ways you could describe the culture that make uh, li living as a Christian, it, it gives Christians an opportunity to shine a little bit. You kind of saw what Peter was talking about uh, uh, this in, in his text a little bit, that Peter talked about the idea of sexual purity, uh, people talked, uh, Peter talked about submitting to those in authority over us, that those were some of the distinctives that his culture struggled with, that gave the Christians that Peter was referring to, gave those Christians an opportunity to shine a bit, all right? Our culture has some distinctives right now as well. And these distinctives, I believe, are opportunities for us to shine, all right? So what are some of our cultural distinctives? There's a lot of them. I wanted to share, I could do a whole message on this, but I wanted to share uh, like three of them, I think. But one of the cultural distinctives of our culture right now is the distinctive of angst, all right? Um, that we are an angsty people, all right? Um, we, we, are, we are an angsty people. And there are a lot of theories as to why our culture is so angsty right now. Some people think social media plays into it, and I, I think that, that is it as well. But really what happened is, uh, you have two very large generations, all right, um, the, the boomers and the millennials, that see the world in very different ways politically, and these two large generations are coming into conflict with one another. This is essentially what's happening in the United States right now. Now, there is a generation in between those two. It is my generation, and we are too small to matter, all right? So, 
That, that's why our, our generation did not bring this into it. We're, we're so small, our generation is. But millennial generation is huge. Boomers are huge, um, a huge generation. And the way that they see the world culturally, the way they see the world politically, it is so different from one another that this is causing some angst in our world, right? Distinctive number two is sexual freedom. That our culture has adopted an idea that as long as I don't hurt anybody, and as long as everything is consensual, then I should be able to live sexually however I want to live and do whatever I want to do. And many, many studies have shown that one of the top priorities of our culture right now is what I would call sexual freedom. That I am uh, allowed to do and to live however I want to live, and I'm allowed to do whatever I want to do. And so to, to somebody like me that feels like, uh, the Bible has something to say about sexual freedom and where it's found, and that God has something to say on this issue, that that's a cultural distinctive that uh, causes conflict with somebody like me, all right, that, that, that sees that the Bible has something to say about this. So sexual freedom would be another one, all right? Uh, the third one is that the search for meaning and significance in experiences, that is a major distinctive of our culture right now, that um, every culture has a way of defining this is how we find uh, significance. This is how we find meaning. And I think that one of the primary ways our culture is trying to find meaning and significance is through experiences, right? Um, and uh, experiences are good things to do. They're good things to have. They make terrible gods. And so these are, some, and there's a lot more too, but these are some of the distinctives of our culture. And so Peter was trying to address the question. I want to put this question on the screen for you because I think that this is worth exploring. And we've talked about this actually uh, back, I think it was in the Hebrew series that we talked about this uh, earlier this year. But I want to put this question uh, on the screen for us is how are you and I to live as Christians in a culture whose main distinctives are not specifically Christian or at times even counter Christianity. So as people that follow Jesus, as people that love Jesus, this is what Peter was trying to address and this is what Jesus is gonna address in our text. As a Christian, right? As a Christian, how do we live as Christians in a culture whose distinctives are not specifically Christian or at times even counter Christianity. And there's two extremes people go to. We've talked about these before, but one is anger, that we give into the angst, we, give it, we join the anger, we join the frustration, and you'll find this on social media. And I am absolutely convinced that a lot of the angst and anger that I see in the Christian community has to do with an absolute lie that any political system is gonna fix this mess that we're in, right? That is absolutely a lie. There is no political system that is going to fix the mess. Jesus is going to fix the mess. Right? And so one of the greatest things we can do is lift Jesus high. And listen, I think politics are important. I follow it pretty closely. But I just don't believe there is a political ideology that can fix things. I believe that our nation, we need a revival to break out, and our nation needs to turn back to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And that will begin to put things back together. So anger is one of them. Withdrawing and ignoring is the other extreme. Now, to be honest with you, this is the one that I'm drawn to. And it's not the correct one, just to let you know. But I am very drawn to this idea of um, turning off our TV, canceling Netflix, and going into a hole to raise my children. <laughs> I am very, very drawn to that idea. And I get that temptation, right? But these are the two extremes that I see people go to. Angst and anger, withdrawing and ignoring. And here's what I want you to see. There is a third way. And there is a better way. 
And Jesus is going to show us that third way in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I heard a really, really great message on this a while back. And uh, I honestly thought about just showing it to you because I, I don't know that I'm going like, to cover this as well. But I, I have really come to believe that this is such an important and powerful text in the Sermon on the Mount, and I think it could really change the way that we view the world. So let me, uh, let me show you the, 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 what Jesus said, and then we'll kind of get into it a little bit, all right? You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So, you are salt. You are the salt of the earth. And on a morning like this, after a winter like this, that should be extremely powerful to you, right? Um, You are the salt of the earth. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you. Uh, I don't know much about salt, all right? Growing up, uh, my dad had high blood pressure, and so my mom really did not add a ton of salt to any food that we ate. I can tell you that I have never in my life, and I, I'm being honest about this, and Cheryl will back me up on this, I have never picked up a salt shaker and salted food before, ever. Like, we, ju- we just did not grow up with salt on the table. It wasn't even available, right? Uh, my, and my mom did that to, to try to help my dad's blood pressure. So um, I don't even really know how to use salt. I mean, I, I get how people do it, but I mean, I... I'm not a fool, but you know, I, you know, I just don't use the stuff. And so I've, I've just, I don't know much about it, but here's what I do know. I know it's a preservative and especially in Jesus's day where there wasn't a ton of refrigeration, salt was used to preserve food. Think about how the apostle Paul would, would teach us later that culture is in a state of decay. This is not a knock on our culture. Uh, Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago. This is to say that this is what cultures do. This is what people do. Cultures tend to decay. And and so if you feel that way about our culture, if you feel that American culture is in a state of decay, guess what? Every culture in human history has felt that way. This is what cultures do. This is what people do. They tend to, uh, unless something stands up under it and helps it, they tend to fall into a state of decay. They, let me be specific about what I mean by that. They tend to give in and are drawn to certain sins. Right? So this is why you'll see Paul's letter to the Roman, Romans and Paul's letter to the Ephesians and Paul's letter to Colossae. And this is why he's talking, uh, Corinthians. This is why he's talking about different things because every culture is different in this regard, but every culture is drawn to and gives into certain sins, shortcomings, and problems. And, and, and Christians, according to Jesus, Christians have an opportunity to be a preservative Christians have an opportunity to slow and even stop the decay by living different lives, by showing the Jesus way is a better way. And so Christian, we are, we are meant to go into the culture and be preservative, to slow the decay. Now, the other thing about salt is that it adds flavor. All right, so let me ask you, how would you describe the flavor of our culture right now? All right? Some might be tempted to say bitterness, that we are a uh, subtly angry culture right now. 
Some would say maybe sweet, that we're looking for this thing that's going to taste good and feel good. And some would be tempted to say spicy, that we're looking for something that's going to taste good, but really it's really bad for us, like a, like a chili pepper. At first it tastes good, and they're like, ah, you know, I need water, right? Milk, whatever, right? Um, and I'm not exactly sure what the right answer is, but I do know that we are called to add the flavor of Jesus to our culture. We are. And that flavor comes from and flows from a life-changing relationship with God. Now, the text immediately previous to this, I think Jesus is exploring the flavor that he is calling us to add. All right, it's, uh, we uh, covered this last week, but let me just read this for you real quick. And you see some of the flavor that, that Christians can bring. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Hooray, right? Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here's the thing about salt, guys. Salt doesn't run away from food. It doesn't. Salt doesn't run away from food. Salt covers the food that it, that it touches in order to bring flavor. So we have this opportunity as Christians, we do, to bring into our culture the flavor of mercy, that we live in a harsh culture right now. We do. And mercy and kindness are attributes that this culture desperately needs to see. And so we get to bring, we get to add the flavoring of mercy. So when you're on social media this week, bring a little mercy into the conversation. When you're talking around the water cooler at work, bring the flavor of mercy to the conversation. When you're, waiting on, uh, when you're being waited on by wait staff at lunch today, be merciful right? Be kind. This is a, a, a flavor that our, our culture desperately needs to see. The flavor of righteousness. That we live in this culture right now where everybody is uh, attempting to live their own truth. That what I think is right and how I want to live is the highest priority in this culture. This culture needs to see some examples of people that are living the Jesus way. That the way of Jesus is their highest priority. They need to see someone for who that's true. That the way of Jesus is the most important thing. And that is a flavor that we get to bring. The flavor of humility. That, man, we are so prideful as a culture. That our insistence that we are right and our insistence that people do things our way, it is based in pride. And our culture desperately needs to see the flavor of humility, and we get an opportunity to live that out. So we are called to be preservatives. We are called to be flavor. And it's hard to do that when you're hiding, and it's hard to do that when you're angry. So Jesus continues. You are the salt of the earth. Here's what Jesus says next. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. We just got done celebrating Christmas a little over a month ago, um, less than a month ago, but um, you know how Christmas came to be in December? Um, I don't mean to like burst anyone's bubble, but we're pretty sure Jesus wasn't born in December, all right? So uh, we don't know when Jesus was born, to be totally honest with you. Nobody, a lot of people think it was probably the spring, but at some point, Christians chose the month of December. Do you know how that came to be? It was because winter was the darkest month of the year, 
and uh, there were all these winter solstice festivals going on to, to have a, uh, basically to have a party in the middle of the darkest part of the year. And so uh, Christians saw that that was happening and they saw all the lights and it reminded them of Jesus. And so they said, you know what we should do? We should have a celebration of our Savior's birth at the darkest time of the year so that we can light candles and light up things and let the light shine in the darkness. This is how Christmas came to be. It's a really beautiful thing, and I hope it doesn't bother you to not know for sure when Jesus was born. It's never bothered me. I love celebrating it at, at, uh, uh, in December. But this is how it came to be. As Christians said, man, it's the darkest time. Our lights can shine the brightest, right? And I know for me, eventually a tree got added in and um, more uh, electric lights got, got kind of brought in. And you know, our family loves to go to Peoria. Have you ever done that before? You go to Peoria in the kind of middle of this, uh, dark, uh, this dark park and you drive through and just the lights just pop. All these different lights in different shapes and it's amazing. The light shines in the darkness and this is the interesting thing about light and darkness. Light doesn't run away from the darkness. Light invades the darkness. So when we see the darkness of our culture, when we see the darkness of culture, we don't get angry, we don't run away, we view it as an opportunity to let our light shine the brightest. Let me put this on the screen for you. I really believe this is true. The darker the culture, the greater the opportunity. The darker the culture, the greater the opportunity. Don't be mad at this culture. Don't run away from this culture. Don't give in to the angst. View it as an opportunity to bring light and flavor and all of this. And say, well, I'd like some more specifics on how to do this, Steve. And I'm so glad that you asked that because Jesus actually tells us that in, in this text. He says, let your light shine that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You know how salt brings flavor? You know how light shines the brightest? Good deeds good deeds. It's showing people the Jesus way. It's living his way. It's making his decisions. Good deeds is the tool that we have in the toolbox. So here's the deal. I don't know what you're facing, right? At home, at work, in school, challenging relationships, decay in the culture, dishonest coworkers. I don't know what you're facing, but I do know this. You are called to be the salt of the earth. You are. You are called to bring the flavor of Jesus to the dinner party. You are called to be the light of the world. You are called to good deeds. So the question in a challenging culture, the question we usually ask is, how can we get the situation to improve? And I get that question, and it's not a terrible question, but this is typically the question that we ask when a relationship is going south, when a culture is in a state of decay, when things aren't going well. How do we improve it? And here's the thing. Jesus never promises that you can. Jesus never promises that we can improve things. But here's what I know for sure. If we match anger with anger, sarcasm with sarcasm, and dishonesty with dishonesty, I guarantee you they won't improve. Right? If Christians give in to their angst, if Christians put their head into the sand and just disappear from culture, if Christians run away, I guarantee you things are not going to improve in our relationships, in our culture, with anything that's in a state of decay. Running away will not bring improvement. It just won't. There's a chance if, to improve things. There's a chance to improve things if we are the salt of the earth. There's a chance to improve things if we are the light of the world. So I think, how can we get things to improve? 
is slightly the wrong question. It's slightly the wrong question. And here, I wanna put a better question on the screen for you. I think this is a better question. What good deed can I do that in a, in a decaying relationship, in a decaying culture, whatever is kind of heading in a way that you don't like, Jesus, I want to be like you. I want to be transformed into your likeness. I, I want to I look like you. What good thing, what good deed can I bring to this decaying situation, whether it's at work or home or in culture? What good thing can I do? I believe that this is the question Jesus asked himself when the Pharisees and teachers of law brought to him a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Right? They caught her in the act. The law of Moses said they were allowed to stone her. They were trying to trap Jesus. You talk about a tense situation. I think it would have been easy for Jesus to maybe run away from that problem, to look the other way. It would have been easy for Jesus to give in to his anger. Instead, he asked this question. I believe that he did. What good thing can I bring to this terrible situation? What good thing can I do? And in the course of asking that question, he saved her life and invited her to leave her life of sin. I think this is the question Jesus asked when he showed up to the upper room experience. And nobody had lined up the foot washer, right? When you were going to have a big meal in this, in this uh, period of time and in this part of the world, you would line up a foot washer because people usually reclined at the table and your feet would get nasty and grody from walking around. And so you'd have a servant there to wash everyone's feet so that the guy next to his feet weren't gross in your face, right? This is, that's a loose translation, but you get the point, right? So nobody lined it up. And so the disciples all show up. And I think it would have been easy for Jesus to have just looked away. It's what the other 12 dudes did. They just all looked away. And we're, you know, we're not washing feet. We're just going to look away. I think it would have been easy for Jesus to give into his anger. What in the world? Who dropped the ball here? Instead, he asked this question. What good thing can I do in this situation? And he rolled up his sleeves. And he took on the nature of a servant and he washed nasty, stinky feet. The job of a slave. I think this is the question Jesus asked when he hung on the cross and he had been given the death penalty for the charges against him that were unfair and he was being crucified. And I think in that moment, it would have been easy for Jesus to give into his anger. Don't you? Unjustly punished for sins he didn't commit. I think it would have been easy for him to look away from the world in that moment. And instead, he asked this question. And he said, what good thing can I do? And in that moment, you know what he did? He prayed for God's grace in, to, in, in the people's lives that were killing him. What one good thing can I do? How can I bring salt? How can I bring light to a difficult culture, to a difficult situation. And I know what you're saying, because I'm thinking the same thing. You're thinking me doing one good thing isn't going to change anything for anyone. How very cynical of you, right? I understand and I even agree with it. But you know what I have found? A messy situation with a little bit of love in it, a messy situation with a little bit of grace in it, a messy situation with a little bit of Jesus in it, is better than a messy situation that just gets messier and messier and messier. Jesus never promises that your good deeds are gonna solve all the world's problems. 
But what your good deeds do is they enter into a messy situation and they bring a little bit of grace and that's good. It brings a little bit of kindness and that's good. It brings a little bit of goodness and that's good. It's better than a messy situation without any of those things. And so the promise here is not how are we going to fix the world way out of our pay grade, right? That is not even on our job description. The promise here is would you bring some salt? Would you bring some light into this culture? Would you live the Jesus way? And it may get messier and messier and messier, but the messiness is gonna have a little bit of grace then. It's gonna have a little bit of goodness then. It's gonna be better. That's the promise. And it's true in our culture. It's true in our relationship. It's true everywhere. So after dinner, typically, um, uh, most of us do our dishes, right? When we're done with dinner, you, you probably do that. Can you imagine if you just decided that you weren't? Some of you are like, have you been to our house right No, No, I, I've not been to your house, right? T- can you imagine if you just said, yeah, we're not doing dishes anymore? What would happen? It would get messier and messier and messier and messier. And here's what's true of me, and maybe it's true for you as well. I don't want to contribute to the mess anymore. This culture is so full of angst. I don't want to contribute to the mess anymore. I want to bring grace. This culture is so divided. I don't want to contribute to the mess anymore. I want to bring peace. This culture is so lost. I don't want to contribute to the mess anymore. I want to bring Jesus. Let's stop making messes and start cleaning them up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and we thank you for his example Um, that right now uh, we are going to celebrate a time in human history when your son Jesus entered the mess. He entered the mess of the world. And he asked a question that I pray that each and every one of us would ask this morning. What good thing can I do? Right? The world's a mess. People are far from my Father. What good thing can I do? And for Jesus, that involved the cross, involved dying for our sin, and resurrecting three days later. And so we're just going to celebrate that decision here over the next few minutes, and we're going to ask the same question. God, would you speak to me right now? This culture is a mess. This relationship is a mess. This thing is a mess. And it is not within my scope of responsibility to fix it, but it is within my scope of responsibility to ask, what good thing are you calling me to do? What does salt look like? What does light look like, Lord? And I can't answer that question for anybody but me. And so I just want to pray that you would speak to every person here your Holy Spirit, and that you would urge us that this is the good thing I want you to do. This is the Jesus thing I want you to do. This is the salt I want you to bring. This, and, and would you just speak to us right now about our situation, our job, the little bit of culture that we live in, our social media. Help us to see what you want us to do, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. We're gonna receive communion right now, as I said in the prayer, And uh, this time where Jesus said, man, I'm not, 
going to give in to anger. I'm not going to stick my head in the sand. I'm going to enter the mess, and I'm going to bring some goodness to the mess. This is a time in human history where Jesus did that, and he is our example. He is our example. And so we're going to receive communion. You'll find two cups stacked on top of each other. One has some bread representing his body. The other has some juice representing his blood. And this is an opportunity for us to remember what he did and then to thank him for what he did and then to ask the same question. Jesus, how do you want me to be like you? How do you want me to enter the mess? What good thing do you want me to do? All right, how can it be fixed is past our pay grade, right? How can it be fixed? We're not responsible for that. But what good can I do? We are responsible for that. And so we'll ask that. And we're gonna have, our ushers will pass out communion. Just hold on to those. Thank Jesus. Ask that question that I mentioned. And then uh, we'll receive it together as a church family. Uh, I'll come back up here in just a minute and we'll receive it.